This is the Plant Advice Gardening Podcast, Episode 13, Gardening Jobs and Plants of Interest for April. Plantadvice.co.uk for all your gardening needs. Hello and welcome to the Plant Advice Gardening Podcast, the podcast to help you get the very best out of your garden with our regular features such as our plant of the month, perfect pairing, two plants that go well together, jobs to do in the garden and plants of note for this time of year. I'm Richard Farrer and I'm George Munford. Coming up in this episode, we have an interview with Richard Todd, who is the head gardener at Anglesey Abbey here in Cambridge and UK, where we live. And we'll be talking to Richard Todd primarily about the Winter Garden, which is a special feature they have at the Anglesey Abbey. Uh, planted the month for April is Fritillaria meliagris, snake's head fritillary. Perfect pairing, two plants that complement each other for this month are Epimedium cross peralchicum phronlitan, which is sometimes called barren wart, and Pulmonaria diana clare, which is sometimes called lungwort. We seem to have a few warts this time. Jobs to do in the garden and the vegetable garden, and plants of note will be Pyrrhus japonica valley valentine, lily of the valley shrub, and Pulmonium reptans, stairway to heaven, sometimes also called Jacob's ladder. We've also got a listener's question, which is a continuation from last month, which I don't think we fully answered the question, which is about winter flowering pansies being eaten by woodlice. And finally, we'll have forthcoming garden shows for the month of April 2014. So, George, we're into April. April showers as well. It's actually raining today, which has stopped you gardening, which is why we're recording the podcast today, isn't it? That's right. We tend to fit it in around my work, don't we, Richard? Oh, we do indeed, yes. Uh, the weather's certainly uh, warmed up a bit, though, isn't it? Yes, it's been quite mild. Um, we're obviously now into spring, but the winter was very mild, and we seem to have a continuation of that, don't we? We have indeed, and I think the plants are certainly a week or two ahead of where they normally are at this time of year. Yes, they are. Things coming into flower. We're sitting here looking at a camellia out of your window, aren't we? We are. A lovely pink one. Yeah, and many other flowers coming out at this time of year, and hopefully um, they won't get damaged by any late frost. Surely getting too late now for a damaging frost. We would hope so. You never know. Like you say, we have had a mild winter, so if it continues like this, it should be good. It's also a very busy time of year now, isn't it, when everything starts bursting out and coming into bud and flower? That's correct, and you have to prioritise jobs in the garden at this time of year. (laughs) A mad time, but an enjoyable time. After winter, when it's been a bit dull, and it all bursts into life, and the colours are spectacular, aren't they? That's right. If you are a lover of the seasons, then gardening is a great profession. I do like the seasons. I think, yeah, some countries don't have the seasons as much as we do. But here in the UK, the British climate, I think the seasons are really nice. At the end of winter, you're looking forward to spring, looking forward to summer. And there's always something different to look forward to, isn't there? And then autumn, all the different colours, all the fallers they say in America. 
Yes, personally, summer is not my favourite season. The spring and the autumn are my favourites. I don't like working in extreme heat. We are are starting to get that in this country, aren't we? Some might doubt that, George. We've had a spate of really cold summers despite alleged global warming, although last summer was really pleasant. It was, wasn't it? And I have seen reports that this summer might be one of the hottest on record, but... Well, I do like a nice hot summer. I think about 25 is a nice comfortable temperature for me. Yes, I agree. I don't think more than that, and we suffer here. It seems strange talking about the summer, Richard, when we've just got an interview uh, concentrating on the winter garden, doesn't it? Yes, that's a bit bizarre. The interview we've got coming up with Richard Todd, the Anglesey Abbey's head gardener, which I recorded last month, but I thought it was best to get it in and, and now. Because it's still an interesting place, the winter garden, as you're sliding from winter into spring. Even in summer, the plants are still beautiful, but it is very much designed to look its best in the middle of winter. Yes, and many of the plants in a winter garden have very striking bark, but that bark, you can still see it throughout the rest of the year, can't you? Very true, yes. Certainly on the betula, the... Betula utilis. uh, Jack Montiade, the ones they've got in a winter garden, which is the silver birch. That was was escaping my mind for a moment there. Yes, I suppose in the the winter, the bark is more striking because there are no uh, very few leaves, so it's more pronounced. I suppose the white bark contrasts against the dark soil as well, doesn't it? Yes, and the other colours as well, the dogwoods, for example. and the, uh... The bright orange of the stems, they're lovely, aren't they? Yes. So, without further ado, that's a good introduction. Here is the interview that I did with Richard Todd at Anglesey Abbey a few weeks back. So, Richard, thank you very much for giving us the time to speak to us. It's a pleasure. You are the head gardener of Anglesey Abbey, a National Trust property in Cambridgeshire here. That is correct. And how long have you been head gardener here? Since 2000. Since 2000? Yes, so that's Uh, what, 13... 14 years, 14 14 years, years coming up. 14 years. And how long have you been at Anglesey Abbey itself as a gardener? Just over 40 years. Appreciably longer then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you must love it. I do love it. I mean, I'm in a very privileged part of my life now where I can actually really sort of manage the garden and change things and add things. So it's a lot of fun. And you're the head gardener. How many people have you got working with you? Not quite seven. We're almost to seven, but we're not there yet. So we're building up. So I've got six and a half, really. And that's all year round you're doing the jobs here? All year round, so we're open 12 months of the year, seven days a week. Well, except Christmas Christmas Eve (laughs) and Christmas Day so far. I'm pleased you get one day off at least. (laughs) (laughs) And how many acres of land have you got here? We actually look after 120 acres because we included now um, what's called a wildlife discovery area at the western end of the property, which is uh, for families and anybody to enjoy discovering wildlife. We discovered it ourselves last year, didn't we? That little wildlife yeah. garden, Sue and I, when it's we came very here. Nice. Yeah, we really enjoyed that. Well, I think we're going to have to wait for the weather to be a little bit drier until we go sure. and explore a bit further. Yeah, it's a bit muddy down there. Has, has this been a challenge this season with all the rain? Not hugely for us. The, the challenge is um, keeping pathways open because uh, we've got about probably... 5,000 metres of woodland path. It's five kilometres. All of that is uh, wood chipped. Yeah. And of course, the more people come, the more it gets worn down and the more the mud comes through. So we're we're on a process right this week of putting, I think it's our third layer this year of wood chip on the path. So that's an ongoing problem. So it's not just 
horticultural gardening, you're, you're getting into almost civil engineering, aren't you? It really is. I think, you know, we uh, last Sunday was our biggest Sunday ever, over 5,000 visitors in one day, and our numbers are growing year on year, and so the upkeep of the garden and keeping it accessible is probably one of the biggest challenges that we have. You know, sort of looking after the plants is relatively <laughs> easy, but it's looking after the needs of everybody come in and making sure they have a good time and it's not a mess. Now, one of the highlights of Anglesey Abbey is the Winter Garden. Everybody raves about it. How old is the Winter Garden? How many years have you had it OK, here? it opened in uh, 1998, so that's... Well, I think we're just coming into our 17th year of it being open. And it came about because we wanted to commemorate the centenary of Lord Fairhaven, who was the donor who gave this property to the Trust. And we needed to do something to celebrate that. He'd done sort of themes of the year, but he'd never done winter. So it was one to fill. And it's turned out to be fantastic, hasn't it? It's spectacular. I think, you know, nobody in their wildest dreams thought it would turn out like this you know we have almost as many visitors in the winter now as we do in the summer and which is a stroke of genius because a winter garden is one of the most challenging to do really yeah it is in one sense but uh in in my horticultural career if i'm talking about horticultural things i've done working in the winter garden has been the best because it opens up opportunities to sort of play with plants and layers of plants in a completely different way, I feel, to any other period of the year or any other setting of a garden. So it gives you a lot of freedom. Because a lot of plants don't have foliage, so you're going for bark colour, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Lots of stems. Uh, the, the great thing about all of those, all your salix and your cornus, is it doesn't matter if it's a grey, dull day, they still look amazingly yeah. bright. You can't switch them off. It's like fiery red, isn't oh, it, on the, on the winter incredible. dogwoods? Incredible, incredible. And you also go for fragrance as well, with the sarcococcus. And... That's correct. So anything that has a flower in the winter inevitably has great scent because they are obviously need to you know, attract pollinators. And on the daytime temperatures, when it's just high enough for things to be moving, they need to attract it quickly. So they can't say, hey, look how beautiful I am. It's just, can you smell me? And, of course, that's what happens. So all of the winter flowering shrubs have incredible fragrance. And so, how do you choose from so many different varieties? Well, so you, many different cultivars? Yeah, you just... I mean, I think that's the, what I mean is the sort of great fun thing. You keep playing with other things you've heard about or other things you've seen, and you think, yeah, that's got to go in the winter garden. It's, you know, because it's so good, it's so interesting, it's got a lovely scent. I mean, just behind the hedge here... It's very small leaf plants called a Zara microphylla. And in about two weeks' time, the flowers on that are minute. You can hardly see them, little yellow flowers. It will smell like a cross between vanilla and chocolate. Really? And really powerful. It's thinking, what is that? Who's eating chocolate? (laughs) You know, and it's just... Because that wasn't in the winter garden originally. I've never heard of that plant before. And of course, it flowers in February. And you think, it's got to be here. So that's a shrub, is it? Yes, an evergreen, well, it can almost grow into a tree. I've got one at home and it grew to 20 foot if it's got a place to grow up. But it's better to keep it as a shrub, otherwise it gets a bit uh, windblown. And what sort of conditions does that like? Uh, Fairly open like like it is here. It's doing really well. It will grow in semi-shade. It likes free draining. Uh, It will grow in an alkaline or an acid soil, so it's... It's a winner, really, isn't it? And what are your soil conditions here? 
we are alkaline 7.5 so this happened to be this part of the garden which is the eastern boundary and we knew this when we were developing it is the driest and quickest draining part of the property right you go down probably 15 inches you're on sand and then not many more inches after that it's on chalk yeah so it's incredibly free draining and the thing that we done to enable the winter garden to really get going was to absolutely pile on the organic matter and is that something you have to do regularly now as well yeah on a yearly basis wherever there's open ground that's uh, still visible we put on leaf mold uh, in the early years it was 40 tons a year just to keep it going because that's what holds your moisture and do you and buy the leaf mold in no it's all you, our own so you, well you're lucky aren't you <laughs> <laughs> we've got plenty of trees and plenty of leaves i suppose if you're looking to get rid of 40 tons of stuff it's ideal it's brilliant and then and it's not only that it does a good job uh, in terms of uh, helping the soil and retaining moisture often we use it as part of the aesthetics so you imagine those lovely dogwoods yeah or the silver birch plantation the floor beautifully black because yeah. they put this lovely layer and that's part of the if you like the artistic elements that you need that to show the others off and you do use a lot of colors and contrasts as an artistic yeah. sort of counterpoint like the offy pogon the black grass right. against um, i think it's dogwoods you've got that against there's dogwoods you? there's lazula there's some carex and miscanthus across and that was fun. Is that what I that's, mean? That's a lovely patch. That is really which is good. The whole thing on its own, no flowers as such. Exactly. But it just really works, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Real interest. Just using contrast, strong contrast, black and white, or yellow and black, or whatever, uh, and it's fun just playing with it. And how does this work then through the other seasons? It's designed as a winter garden. Yeah. Does it equally shine through other seasons, like spring and autumn or summer? Yes, it does have its. Uh, Autumn is amazing because all the dogwoods, prunus, your aces are amazing with colour. So they're tremendous. There are a number of buried plants which come on from that period onwards. During the summer, a lot of the foliage is brilliant in terms of it just looks lovely, the foliage of all of the plants. And here, in this, what we call the quiet room, you probably know that it's changed. It used to have grasses in and the grasses were fine to a point but they weren't good all year round yeah it was quite dull at some time so I, I wanted to change it so that we hit the seasons so you can see well if we look to our right the crocus is just coming out there are seven thousand crocus thomasinianus in this patch this is the first year they'll have all been in how long does it take you to plant that many oh i didn't take very long they're tiny and then it's followed by the lavender two sorts of lavender and then in amongst the lavender, you can't see it very well, but there are sedum. I can just see the heads of them, which come on from about September, going right through to November. The foliage is good through the summer, and there's these wonderful patches of pink and sort of dark red um, flower heads. And it then becomes uh, you know, more of an all-year interest garden. And of course, the bees love it. They love everything that's in it. It's like orchestrating a symphony, isn't it? So <laughs> one thing comes along, then followed by something else. And yeah. Almost finishing a big crescendo in That's autumn right. time when all the That's leaves right. change colour. And yeah, yeah. And away we go again. So it's a lot of fun. And, of course, gardeners are truly artists at heart. And you're always tweaking and changing. Always. Well, what I are think... your next plans for the <laughs> garden? You must have something in mind. 
Um, nothing I can actually spell out just at this moment, but I'm always looking at the winter card and thinking you can't let things get too old and too tired. I think that's one of the mistakes of people who have had winter gardens. There are some things you can let mature, like strawberry tree would be the right thing to let it mature, but there are some trees that you think its juvenile life is its most interesting part of its life. And you have to be prepared to take down, start again, take some things out. Just next door we've got Gary Elliptica. They've been fine most years. Silk tassel Yeah, they get frosted so badly with us. I haven't got hardly any tassels this year. And I look at it and I sort of think, it's all right, but it's only all right occasionally. Now, should I take some of them out? You're a perfectionist. (laughs) (laughs) creative that's the word (laughs) i think you do a wonderful job we love coming here great it is stunning if someone has got a small garden at home a small patch what two or three plants would you recommend where they could give real interest in winter time well obviously the the dogwoods things like midwinter fire are stunning even if you can only afford to have a space for two that's where you get the bright orange red bright orange stems fantastic autumn color you know, definitely got to have either winter flowering honeysuckle or winter flowering, you know, the viburnums. They're lovely as They're well. They're great. Yeah. You just need something flowers. like that. You need yeah. something with scent that's going to drift in the back door. Bit of sarcococca on the front drive. It just drifts in. I've heard of the sarcococca before. George and I have my friend on, yeah. uh, who does the podcast with me. We talked about it. But until I came here in the wintertime and experienced the yeah. fragrance firsthand, yeah. it is stunning, isn't it? Really it is. is beautiful. And we've been quite smart because we planted it in the car park. You open your car door and you think, yep. oh, this is heaven. <laughs> George always says he's um, in wintertime, plant it somewhere where you're going to walk past every yeah. day on the way to the car. When you're going to work, exactly. you come in home and you get that blast of fragrance, that's which right. can that's lift right. your spirits, I suppose, on that otherwise right. dull day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think that's the thing about winter gardens. They really cheer you up on the rotten days of winter. Well, if you've got 5,000 people here last weekend, <laughs> I think you've cheered a lot of people up. Yeah, I think we have. <laughs> Richard, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to us. That's a pleasure. I think you, do, you and your team, you do a wonderful job. Yeah. And uh, long may it continue. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that interview, George. Richard was a thoroughly interesting person to talk to and such a lovely chap as well. I don't, didn't realise the amount of uh, leaf mould. Uh, was it 40 tonnes, he said, that they had to put onto the gardens? That was absolutely phenomenal. But lucky, if they've got that leaf mould, they can use themselves on their own trees. Yes, did he say he mixed it with manure or... Did... No, he didn't. He just mentioned that they put the leaf mould down to try and help improve the soil, but they've got, a, yeah. I suppose, a natural supply of this stuff. Yes, I suppose leaf mould, from a personal point of view, it's more a, a soil conditioner. It affects the structure of the soil rather than... Nutrients. Uh, as a nutrient, yeah. yeah. Helps drainage and, and such like. Yeah, it's much, uh, especially during the winter months, you don't want water sitting about plants' roots because it's really not good for them. Now, a lot of plants don't like to be waterlogged, do they? No, but funnily enough, we're going to talk about one in a minute that does like that. That is the Fritillaria meliagris, isn't it? That's correct. Should we talk about that now, the plant of the month? Yes. So uh, coming up next is our plant of the month. Fritillaria meleagris, it's the snake's head fritillary. 
It's a bulb that grows up to 30 centimetres tall and spreads only about five centimetres for each bulb. It grows most happily on soil that is reliably moist. And I've noticed in many gardens where I work that the more moisture-retentive the soil, the better they seem to thrive. Is it indigenous to the UK? I think it's indigenous to Europe, Richard. I'd have to check that. Because I seem to remember seeing it on the TV programme where they have it in meadows growing naturally. Yes, I think it's indigenous to Europe, including the UK. But I would have to check on that one. Right, OK. So, as I said before, it thrives on soil that is reliably moist, which is very unusual for a bulb, isn't it? Because you often hear that most bulbs require excellent drainage and a summer baking. But this Yeah, one, because I guess it could be the danger of them rotting. That's right, but this one seems to thrive on soil that's extremely moist. It's a hardy bulb and it prefers full sun or part shade. Like most bulbs, it doesn't grow very big. It just has average growth. But the main thing about this plant is the flowers. They're absolutely striking. They have a snake-like markings on the flower petals. The flowers can be purple or white. If you have a look on our website, you can have a look at this plant. If you go to the show notes for this page at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 13, I've got a, a photo and a link to the snake's head fertility. George has taken a photo there, and you, I'm looking at it now as I'm speaking, and it does look like snake skin, doesn't it? It's so bizarre. Yeah, it's a very checkered pattern, isn't it? It's beautiful. And those yeah. flowers are produced in April and May. Like a little lantern dangling down from the stalk, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And they, they look fantastic, don't they? They do. And this plant has the RHS Award of Garden Merit, so obviously stood the test of time. Indeed, that's always a good thing to look for, isn't it? Now, perfect pairing are two plants we choose each month that go together. Why have you chosen these two plants, George, and why do you think they pair well together with each other? As with every perfect pairing that I do, I always go for the colour contrast. So this month we have perennial with yellow flowers, and I thought I would complement it with another perennial that has blue flowers. So the first one is Epimedium cross peralticum frontlighten. That sounds German to me. Yes, we should investigate where the uh, cultivar was bred, shouldn't we, really? Yeah. It's a slow-growing, hardy evergreen perennial. It can grow up to 40 centimetres tall, and it can spread about 60 centimetres each plant. People often grow these in groups to create ground cover. It likes partial shade and prefers moist, well-drained, humus-rich soil. The pale, bright yellow flowers are star-shaped, and at this time of year, during April and May, they're, like I said before, a nice yellow colour. And the leaves are also attractive, being heart-shaped. Very delicate-looking flowers, aren't they? And quite a pale sort of yellow, pastely sort of shade. Yes, I suppose um, we're just looking at a photograph at the moment. I have seen this plant before, I can't remember exactly the shade itself. It's too long ago since I've seen it. As I say, you have to see it in the flesh to really appreciate it. Yeah, looking on a computer screen, the colours can be adjusted, can't they? They can, absolutely. And I've found that with delphiniums. Or the, you, you get these striking blue delphiniums in a photo, but sometimes they're not quite as blue. <laughs> they're more purple when you actually see them in the flesh. <laughs> never live up to expectations when you see them in the flesh. No. Going off track, though. And... This month, 
I thought I would pair this plant with the Pulmonaria Diana Clare, much easier to pronounce. This is a semi-evergreen, hardy perennial. It doesn't grow too fast. It can grow up to 30 centimetres tall and a spread of 40 centimetres. With these two plants, you could interplant them or you could have one clump in front of another. Both plants prefer partial shade. So if you have a partially shaded site in the garden that you might be struggling with what to plant, these two would be a good idea. Which are challenging environments sometimes, aren't they, partial shade? That's right, especially if the soil's dry. I mean, both of these would prefer some moisture in the soil. So below a tree would be okay, providing there's still some moisture there. Both would prefer a humus-rich soil. The flowers on the pulmonaria are carried in small clusters and they're violet blue during March to May. It is a lovely violet, isn't it? Quite vivid. Yes, and with a lot of the pulmonarias, you get more than one colour on the flower clusters. You can see there, there's a pinky red. Yeah. red. There's some pinky reds on the, on the flower cluster and other blue violets. So a very interesting plant in that respect. And the leaves as well, they're mottled, silvery sort of mottled leaves, aren't they? So they're not just plain green. No, so both plants, the Epimedium and the Pulmonaria, not just the flowers, the leaves are also very interesting. Which I think is an important point. So often we focus entirely on the plant flowers, but the foliage of plants can be as interesting. Indeed, some plants we choose primarily for the foliage, don't we? Absolutely. And one thing I often get with gardening clients is they say, oh, I want colour, I want colour in my garden. Well, by all means, choose plants with flowers. But primarily, you should be looking at the foliage because the flowers often aren't there to look at in the winter. They might only be there to look at for a month or two. Well, as you say, even in the summer or when they do flower, they flower for such a brief period and then you're left with entirely the foliage. Yes, and the foliage is there all year round. So, for example, this week I planted a Photinia Fraseri red robin, which has lovely young red foliage, and I deliberately planted that because I knew that it would provide some colour all the year round. I like the hookahs as well. Didn't used to, I've really got into them recently, and they have a nice range of colours, some real vivid reds, almost like autumn colours. Yeah, there's one called Marmalade, has some lovely different shades of pink and orange within it. Yeah, just foliage, but really stunning. Yeah, in any garden, I would always make the structure of the garden one of foliage. And then the flowers are the icing on the cake, I guess. That's the way I look at it, yeah. A good tip, George, and a good way of thinking of things. Well, if you're interested in these plants or any of the plants we talk about, you can get them from links on our website, which you can get to for this episode at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 13. Jobs to do in the garden. Now, jobs to do in the garden, George. As we've said, April is a busy time for the garden, so we've got a bit of a longer list this month. Absolutely. Let's start rattling through it. (laughs) As we mentioned before, the risk of frost is diminishing every day as we move into April. So slightly tender plants such as penstemons and hardy fuchsias can be cut back now. I would delay that personally in March, but this month, April, is perfect time to do it. We can mulch borders and flower beds. 
This prevents soil moisture evaporation and slows down weed growth if the mulch is sterile. And also with the traditional April showers, it locks in any moisture that we get. Make sure we look after lawns this month, mowing once a week, scarifying, weeding and feeding. And we have an e-book that we mention from time to time. So That's right. Yeah, if you sign up for our regular monthly newsletter, which has many of the same points we talk about in this podcast, uh, when you subscribe to that, we uh, let you download a free ebook that George wrote on how to get the perfect lawn. With time and effort, I think. That's right. Dedication required for the perfect lawn. <laughs> also this month during April, herbaceous perennials can still be split, any congested clumps, that is. What you often find with herbaceous perennials is the centre will die out and the youngest parts of the clump will be the most vigorous. So it's those bits that you can cut off and dispose of the centre. Give some to your friends if you like. Not the centre that's died off, the, the, <laughs> the, youngest, the youngest parts. Uh, share and it around. really don't like them. <laughs> uh, also this month we can feed roses with specialist rose food. Deadhead, the early flowering bulbs. Daffodils start to look a bit tired this month, don't they? Because yeah. the tulips come into their own. Keep an eye on nighttime temperatures and protect the flowers of fruit trees when frost is forecast using horticultural fleece. Not always practical if you've got a very tall fruit tree, but most of the modern ones are on dwarfing rootstocks. So. I can imagine that's a bit of a faff, keeping an eye on the temperature, thinking it could be frosty tonight, running out with your blanket put over the trees. I suppose your it next depends door on how... are going to uh, think you've gone mad. Yeah, I suppose it depends on how, how important your crop of uh, fruit is that you're potentially protecting. And how sheltered your garden is, I guess, as well. Yes, that's right. Some gardens won't be as frosty as others, but just keep an eye out on the weather forecast. And if you have um, fruit trees that are in full flower and a late frost comes along, if you've got the time and the patience, then cover them with some horticultural fleece. There are plenty of shrubs that can be pruned this month that have recently finished flowering, such as the Forsythia. Plant out any half-hardy or tender summer bulbs, for example, dahlias and gladioli. And there are some hardy annuals that we can sow in the border this month, such as Clarkia. Evergreen trees and shrubs and container-grown plants can still be planted this month. Now that's an interesting point, George, because we've just planted a new hedge at the front of the garden. You helped rip out the old one. And we planted yew trees. 16 little yew trees. I bought them online from a, um, I think it was Glebe Farm Hedging. They were brilliant. They shipped them down. They were fairly cheap, about £3.60 each. And they were bare-rooted, so it takes a lot less space, I suppose, shipping them. And they're about 50, 60 centimetres high. And I'm hoping the hedge will get established in years to come. We might even try topiarising it, although we haven't decided what we're going to do yet. Ah, Excellent. You haven't told me about that bit, Richard. I uh, no. <laughs> what so, are your artistic skills with shears like, George? Yeah, uh, maybe a pair of scissors. <laughs> well, I think we've got a few years to come, but the hedge really does look nice. I think perhaps I'll take a photo and stick it up on the website or our Facebook page, and then people can see how it's progressing. Maybe you could have a series of photos, one on the same day every year, and see how it grows each year. That would be interesting. That is a good thought. I'll have to stick it in my diary. That would look good, wouldn't it? It would indeed. So, in the vegetable garden, George, we've looked at what to do in the main garden, the vegetable garden, fruit and produce. What have you got to do there? 
In the vegetable garden during April, uh, young aubergine plants can be moved to a cold frame this month for hardening off. You might have started those off in the house on the windowsill or in a heated conservatory, somewhere like that. Start off in the greenhouse or on a windowsill seeds of runner beans, tomatoes, marrows, courgettes, cucumbers, melons, pumpkins, sweet corn. These can be sown direct outside this month if you keep an eye on nighttime temperatures. Plant out without the need to protect from frost any of the following earlier main crop potato varieties, spinach, Swiss chard, lettuce, globe artichokes, one-year-old asparagus crowns, peas, carrots, French beans, onions in the form of seeds or sets. You say one-year-old asparagus crowns, so those you would have had to bring on in a greenhouse or something for a year? Yeah, or usually buy from a nurseryman, probably a specialist nurseryman. You often buy asparagus mail order. Right, OK. Can they, you, be, can they be grown from seed then, or...? I think they can. It's not something that I grow myself, because you have to have the space for a, an asparagus bed. I think they take a while to get going, but once they do get going and they keep cropping, they're a wonderful plant. Yes, but they also have a lifespan, so they do tire after a certain amount of time and you need to plant new, younger crowns. Like most things, most plants, I suppose, have a a lifespan, some longer than others. That's right. Your yew trees being the oldest example. Yeah, once I'm dead and gone, the yew trees will still be there. My legacy, perhaps, George. Yes, thousands of years. Can't they live for? I don't know. I'm not going to be around to count. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I won't be able to complain if they don't live that long. Plants of note. Now, plants of note, George. What delights have you got in store for us this month? This month we have the Pieris Japonica Valley Valentine, often also called the common name the Lily of the Valley Shrub. Uh, we were talking about this before, weren't we, Richard? Yeah, the reason we think the it's called the of it. uh, lily of the valley shrub is because the flowers on this pieris, or on all pieris actually, they look very similar in their structure and their shape to the flowers of the lily of the valley. They do. Clusters of little dangling bell-like flowers, aren't they? That's right. In this case, the flowers are pink with a, a sort of creamy white cap, aren't they, at the top? Yeah. I so said perhaps virgin more on the red, but... We're coming into that colour question with screens and photos again, aren't we? Yeah, deep pink, I think, is the colour we'll have to agree on. Okay. So, yeah, it's a hardy, slow-growing evergreen shrub, and you should treat it a bit like a rhododendron or a camellia. Ericaceous soil, then. Yeah, with a low pH. If you don't have that sort of soil in your garden, then grow it in a pot in a sheltered, shady site. It's an evergreen shrub, and it can grow up to two and a half metres tall, and slightly less spread, only about two metres. We'll cope with full sun, but I would suggest partial shade myself. Yeah, I've got one in the side alleyway here, and that's in... Well, it does get a bit of early morning sun facing east, but generally it's in partial shade, and it seems to do quite well. Again, it's in a pot because it, it needs the ericaceous soil. Yes, and I would always suggest with any of these ericaceous plants... They use a soil-based compost. People very often make the mistake, I think, of buying ericaceous compost that has no soil content at all. It's uh, a high peak percentage, and I find that the nutrients in that are quickly exhausted. So I would buy a good quality John Innes ericaceous 
soil-based compost for ericaceous shrubs in particular. Interesting. And this plant as well is or has the RHS Award for Garden Merit and it also has the RHS Perfect for Pollinators Award. So it means it's a plant which bees and pollinating insects like, which in the springtime is a good thing, isn't it? It helps give some food for the bees and whatever's flying around to get things going. Yes, that's a wonderful attribute in a plant, isn't it? Yeah, something which I know the RHS are very keen to promote. And the other plant of note this month is the Pulmonium Reptans Stairway to Heaven, common name Jacob's Ladder. This is a hardy deciduous perennial. It doesn't grow particularly fast, up to 40 centimetres tall and 45 centimetres spread. And the foliage, when you look at it, is very similar to the Euonymus shrub, that variegated cream and green. Yeah, I mistook it for that when I first saw it. Yeah, and the other reason we saw the comparison was because the leaves of this plant also have a pink tinge, and that's exactly the same as the Eornimus fortunii, as one called Emerald Gaiety, for example. They both have the attribute that they have this pink tinge on the leaves. With the Eornimus, that's just in the winter months when it's a bit colder. So getting back to the Pulmonium Reptin Stairway to Heaven, it's best in full sun or partial shade, and it prefers a moist, well-drained soil. In addition to the foliage, the flowers are light blue, sometimes white, in April and May. Talking about the foliage, like we were earlier, I think this would be a lovely addition to a garden because you've got a variegated plants, so the green and the cream, and then the tinge of the pink on the leaves as well. I think it's a lovely addition to a garden border. Yes, but the pink tinge is only there in the spring. But yeah, it's going back to our previous discussion, isn't it, about making foliage the prime source of colour in your garden. And I guess trying to plan for the year in the garden from the spring through to summer, autumn, winter, trying to have interest for all the different months and seasons. Absolutely, and it's such an important factor in the garden, isn't it? Making sure you've always got some colour all different times of year. Yeah, definitely. Certainly if you can see your garden from your lounge window or, or wherever in the house you're looking out, you want to be able to see it and, and appreciate it, don't you? Absolutely, yes. Now, this plant has got plant breeders' rights attached to it, George. Can you explain what that means? Yes. My understanding of that is you cannot propagate this plant for commercial sale without the permission of the person that originally bred it. So somebody's bred it, and effectively, it's like copyright for plant breeders. Absolutely. That's my understanding of it, So it's their intellectual property and time has gone into producing this particular cultivar and they don't want you going and producing it and selling it and making money from it because they put a lot of time and effort in. That's correct, yeah. Sounds fair. Does to me as well. Your questions. Now, your questions. We had a question last month from Terry Esling, who said, Hi, my window box planters are planted up with winter flowering pansies, but they're getting eaten away by wood lice. I've tried chemical treatment previously, but doesn't seem to stop them. Any ideas, please? Well, we talked about this last month, George, and we wondered whether the baskets or the planters that they were in were wooden and perhaps old wood, and the wood lice were happily munching away from that. Well, Terry's come back to us after listening to last month's podcast and said the planters are metal window troughs lined with fabric-type liner. The compost 
replaced with new and fresh basket compost. The troughs are hanging on hangers and a brick wall underneath windows. There is not any rust on the window sills or the like. And he says, I'm assuming it's uh, he, Terry, if it's not, I'm sorry. I admit the compost is quite rough compost with bits of decayed matter in. The compost is commercial compost, Arthur Bowers tub and basket compost. Um, previously I have tried a commercial woodlice control powder but this seemed totally ineffective and certainly not cheap I also doused the whole area previously with Jay's fluid hoping that this would eradicate the said woodlice but to no avail I think he's tried everything any ideas? he's certainly persevering isn't he Richard which is why we should persevere as well I mean all, all I can do from a distance is just try and look for clues I'm sure that Arthur Bauer's tub and basket compost is a fantastic compost to use. I can't imagine that they won't have tested it for certain pests that might particularly like it. I'm a bit concerned that he says it has bits of decayed matter in it. That, to me, would suggest that it's not fully rotted. Uh, You're wondering that the decayed matter could be lumps of fibrous material and that's what the woodlice are feeding on or encouraging them in and then they'll have a go at the pansies that's what i'm thinking uh, woodlice you just have to think about what woodlice want to eat i think that woodlice want to eat decaying wood matter now if they're um, going for decay matter though why would they try attacking say the roots of a, a live growing plant I don't know. I mean, uh, it's almost as if the the roots of the pansies are the dessert after the main course. (laughs) (laughs) There is another clue here, I personally think, that might be a contributing factor, and that's the window troughs are made of metal. Now, I'm thinking that the breeding of the woodlice will definitely be higher at a higher temperature, and it may be that the compost is heated up by the metal window troughs. Do you think... Well, do you think the metal is going to absorb the sun and then transfer it through as opposed to some wood which would be more insulating because of the air gaps in the material? Yes, I think the compost in a wood trough would have a lower temperature than the compost in a metal trough, especially if it was on a wall in a south-facing position. That's a really interesting thought. See, in wintertime, I would have thought the other way around. The metal would conduct heat away outside, but I suppose... When the sun comes out and temperatures are getting warmer, yeah, I, I can see your logic there. But there would still be woodlice there regardless of what the temperature is. I'm just saying that the number of woodlice present might be increased by the fact that the troughs are metal rather than wood. And then, it, yeah, it's a tipping point, uh, isn't it? Yeah. But I can't personally offer any more advice on that, I don't think. Okay, well, I'm a bit stuck with this one. <laughs> We've tried there, or George has tried very hard, Terry. I hope that's given you a few clues. The only other thing I can suggest, I don't know if you are a member of the RHS. If you are a member of the RHS, they do have a fantastic service where you can phone them up and they will do their very best. I know you can even send samples off to them and they will look at various samples and try and work out what's going on. So if you're not a member of the RHS, it could be worth considering that and availing yourself of their services. Anyway, if you do find a solution, please let us know, because I would be intrigued to know for future. Forthcoming garden shows. Now, forthcoming garden and flower shows. We're into April, and it's beginning the show season. From the 11th to 12th of April, RHS London Orchid Show and the RHS 
Botanical Art Show are on in London, and from the 11th to 13th of April, the RHS Spring and Flower Show in Cardiff. And then from the 24th to 27th of April, up north in Harrogate in Yorkshire, we have the Harrogate Spring Flower Show for 2014. And on the 27th of April, RHS London Alpine Garden Show. So there's quite a few garden shows coming up to keep you entertained and busy during the month of April. Well, that's about all for this episode. I think we've covered quite a bit in this episode, George, but that goes with the territories for this season, doesn't it? Yes, what with the interview and everything we've talked about, Richard, people might have to set quite a bit of time aside to listen to to, our podcast this month. Plenty to do and plenty to think about. If you've got any questions that you'd like to ask us, we will do our best, and we can't always promise to answer them, such as Terry's question. Please email us at podcast at plantadvice.co.uk the show notes for this episode you can find on our website with links to the various plants we've talked about at plantadvice.co.uk slash episode 13 we hope to be getting out and about a bit more to the garden shows and we'll be putting pictures up of some of these on our facebook page which you can find at facebook.com slash plantadvice or follow us on twitter at plantadvice And I think that's about all for this month. I'm off in a few weeks to Holland. I'm going to the Kirkenhof Gardens, which are a stunning array of daffodils, tulips and hyacinths, all sorts of bulbs, and I hope to report back on that next month with some lovely photos as well. So that's all from us for this episode. Thanks ever so much for listening, and we hope you'll listen again next month. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. This podcast was brought to you by plantadvice.co.uk for all your gardening needs.